the failure to act with sufficient ambition to avert the climate catastrophe will be the greatest moral failure of our time. Making changes takes courage, and if we don't change things, we won't have a future. I'm an environmentalist. A lot of people don't understand that. I think I know more about the environment than most people. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Zero Carbon East off. Welcome to Zero Carbonista. I'm Ian Collins, but that's largely irrelevant. If this is the first time you've listened, and shame on you, by the way, some background. This podcast series is really about the views, thoughts, campaigns and ideas of one man. Dale Vince is the entrepreneur who's built his success in the green energy sector. He's the owner of Ecotricity, the world's first green energy company, an area he identified yonks before it was remotely on the political agenda. He's also the chairman of Forest Green Rovers, the world's first vegan football club we'll come back to that in a few moments um, it's been a busy week dale as well because of course we've had um davos which sounds like a doctor who monster to me but um yeah. davos of course the forum where and i can't quite work out i've never worked out uh, who it's for really i understand quite a lot of billionaires go but then clearly there's other components to this uh, this soiree I, you, you you weren't there yourself i was expecting to see you no never been yeah it's a funny kind of event isn't it for you know, it seems to be for the very rich, uh, influential, you know, uh, not just governments by any means. Um, yeah. And Greta went there, of course, this year. It was 50th anniversary, I think, of Davos. I think I mean, it was. It seems weird. It, it seems to kind of, uh, you know, symbolize the degree to which uh, a certain group of people really do have a big influence in our world, the way the world runs. You know, beyond yeah. governments, it's a kind of super government uh, kind of organization, isn't it? Maybe it is an organization of bad guys worthy of Doctor Who. Yeah, it's kind of. I think David Icke has a field day with these things when he makes his <laughs> videos talking about the, the, the real reason underpinning what's going on. Uh, well, it, it's it, a timely moment then to remind ourselves of some of the big players over there in Davos, and of course we'd be fa- we might come back to him later in this episode. But um, we talk about a climate emergency, we talk about environmental catastrophes, and frankly, we've all been wasting our time. Dale, you've been wasting your time because this man has other ideas to embrace the possibilities of tomorrow we must reject the perennial prophets of doom and their predictions of the apocalypse okay we'll come back to that in a second but then great bit of timing greta turned up the right the left as well as the center have all failed our house is still on fire your inaction is fueling the flames by the hour And if you wanted a bit of a royal fanfare, this man showed up too. We must rapidly realign our own economy to mimic nature's economy and work in harmony with it. We simply cannot waste any more time. Okay, Dale, so let's let's just look at this unlikely trio of characters, uh, among many, of course, that, that, that showed up. I mean, Donald Trump, as far as I could work out just from watching and listening to this, he sort of went further th- than he's ever gone, essentially saying there's nothing to see here. Uh, we've got a lot of doom mongers out there. We need optimism. We should be optimistic right now. He said America's got the best water and the best um, air than anywhere else on the planet, etc. There's nothing to see here. It's funny, isn't it? He, he said that often about America's water and air. And in the news this week, he's removed all of the protections for America's water that uh, Obama put in place. 
Um, so he says one thing and does another, uh, Mr. Trump. It's also ironic to me that, you know, he got elected, if anybody remembers, his campaign was very much about tearing America down. There was nothing positive about his campaign. He only talked about how rubbish America was and how he had to make it great again. And yet, uh, when it comes to climate change, which is an absolute existential threat, he says, it's okay, let's be positive. Um, well, the man's a fool, isn't he? You'd almost think he made it up as he went along. <laughs> well, that's a good point. I, I think I think you're right. He does. He does. I loved what Greta said, by the way. I did uh, on social media see the opening of the speech that she gave, and and I thought it was it was really uh, magnificent. She said uh, she had told people they needed to panic because our house was on fire, and she had been warned yeah. that she shouldn't tell people to panic because it would cause all sorts of problems. And she said, "Don't worry. I can assure you, I've tried it before, and nothing happens." <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. I, I mean, the order, it shouldn't be the order of events, really, should it? That the, the leader of the free world, the president of the United States of America, stands up and the audience are going, don't worry, but we'll get the real version from a 17-year-old in a minute. I mean, that shouldn't have been <laughs> the way we're thinking, but that's kind of the way we now perhaps have to think. Yeah, it's a crazy world we live in, no doubt about it. Then we have Prince Charles. I mean, he's talking about... And I, I feel a bit sorry for Prince Charles because he's been talking... And I'm sure someone's got a big old catalogue of environmental things that are not so positive in, in, in the royal family. However, he has talked, certainly at the very least, danced around these issues of the environment for many, many years. I mean, almost written off as a, a, a kind of a bit of a fool for even raising some of these issues. Yeah, I think he was early to the game, wasn't he? And at that time, uh, I think a lot of people were kind of written off as being slightly cranky by be, by focusing on these issues. Uh, and he it didn't help himself, I think, also by talking about talking to plants to help them grow. I think that un undermined him just yeah. a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> he, it, I've, I've met him a couple of times, you know, and he he definitely has a grip on these issues. But I would say, for me, that's undermined by the fact that he's against large windmills. He, he, Why he would that the be? Ones. Why would he be against large windmills? Is, is, is that an aesthetics thing? or a... Yes, an aesthetic thing. As far as I can understand from our conversations, it was about the aesthetics. They're a bit big. Didn't mind the little ones, didn't like the big ones. Uh. And I think you can't be a serious environmentalist unless you're prepared to accept uh, that we need to build big windmills. And it's interesting because I, I, I saw, again, you have to be very careful when you try and judge the world through or, or try and form opinions through what people write on, on social media. Um, we'll come back to Prince Charles in a second, but I saw somebody saying, actually, it's an urban myth about windmills. And, you know, this every now and again, there's a stat saying uh, this was the point in the year where we took more of our power from wind than we did from anywhere else or any other source. Uh, and somebody had countered that by putting a little kind of image up which showed a dial supposedly saying these are all the methods with which fuel was or energy was created and wind was about 5%. And this chap was saying it's clearly nonsense that wind is important. It's unreliable. And, and isn't really working. So what, what, what's, you know, you built your first windmill in 1996. You you know a thing or two about these bladed beasts. Uh, what, what's the score then? What are they producing? Uh, I don't know what period of time that was uh, quoted over, what you just what you just said. It might have been a reading somebody took at half three in the morning or something, you know, on a yeah. cold Christmas I mean, that's night. how it's often done. That's how it's often done. It's like, oh, look, there's no wind today, therefore there's a problem. If you look at last year in Britain, it was over 30% of our electricity that came from renewable energy, mostly from the wind. And, you know, you can't, uh, you can't deny that statistic over yeah. the whole year. Of course, wind comes and goes because it's the weather. You know, the critics of wind energy and renewable energy generally... 
will say that it's unreliable. Um, but what they mean is really that it's driven by the weather and you know it comes and goes with the weather. That doesn't make it unpredictable or unreliable, in fact, and it doesn't mean we can't cope with it. And when we run our country more than one-third, or about one-third, actually, on renewable energy in, in 2019, you've got to say that uh, that's the proof of the pudding. So somebody, for example, goes to a big field and it's full of windmills and none of them are moving around. And they deduce from that that, well, therefore, they're idle, so the whole system doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, the, the response right. might be obvious to that, but what is the what is the response? You know, they're not unpredictable and they're not unreliable just because they come and go with the weather. If you look at a measure called load factor, that gives you a a better comparison of how renewable energy performs. And actually, it's an eye-opener in terms of how fossil fuel and nuclear power stations perform. So a fossil and nuclear power station may be running at around about 50% load factor. That means that they're only running half the time in, in, uh, in general terms. And you might be surprised by that because, you know, it's a machine that you can turn on and turn off. It's absolutely under our control. But they only run half the time. A windmill uh, would probably have a load factor of about 30% in England and about 40% in Scotland or offshore. So this device that's driven utterly by the weather is pretty close in terms of load factor to a nuclear power station or a fossil-fueled power station. On that basis, bearing in mind, just going back to Prince Charles, you'd think that would kind of override, Okay, the aesthetics don't have to be everybody's idea of what what looks okay but you'd you'd have thought that the basic kind of mathematics and the facts about it that you've just outlined would would perhaps override his view i think they need to we unveiled a plan uh, a few weeks ago during the general election campaign actually for the county we live in of gloucestershire and we we did a little bit of work and we found that if we installed 100 modern windmills we could power all of the homes in the county about a quarter of a million of the homes so we put this out there as a, uh, as a kind of fact and said to people, yeah, actually, we've got the choice here in the county. Um, our, our district council have got a, a zero carbon target by 2030. But we said, look, it can be done with just 100 modern windmills, but they have to be on the hilltops. And this is where some people have a problem with them. But this is a really important choice that we have to make. Are we trying to protect the view or are we trying to protect the environment that we actually live in, the air that we breathe and, and all that kind of stuff? And I think it's one of the fundamental battles that we've got to fight in order to move to being a zero carbon economy or country and, and deploy renewables at a much greater pace than we've been able to do so far. Obviously, onshore wind is banned at the moment by the Tory government. That may change, but there is this fundamental problem of landscape preservation and, and when we when we do this we're only preserving a man-made landscape anyway the hills in Gloucestershire are not natural uh, they're very much impacted by farming and by man sure and uh, you know so it's a fundamental kind of philosophical kind of point that we've got to get over and did you did you say the Tory government banned offshore wind uh, no onshore onshore Tory government banned onshore wind probably four or five years ago now something um, like that. so what what again what's the thinking there is it is it kind of in the Prince Charles what why would you want to ban something that demonstrably works i think it was just a thing in the tory party a bit like europe really i suppose um, but you know a few tory mps were obsessed about it and uh, they kind of created uh, a false narrative for themselves that uh, wind was unpopular people didn't want it and they needed to ban it yeah. but i mean that went against every opinion polling especially the government opinion polls which they were taking regularly i mean it's simply not true that that wind energy was unpopular or needed banning you think there would be a kind of I don't know, even if you, I often think with these things, when governments do this sort of thing, that even from their own, even if they had to make it up, even if they didn't really believe it, even if they just wanted to look good, 
you think that Boris Johnson could very easily just go, we're going to have a wind farm frenzy. We're going to build these suckers everywhere we can because they work. It's proven they worked. They're clean. What's not to like? And that would tick a whole bunch of boxes. There'd be, you know, many more of those working class people that thought they could never vote Tory might even vote Tory. It would be so easy to do that. And of course, you could say, well, it also keeps happy business because it takes big business to put these things together. And, you know, there's a there is clearly a corporate component to doing this on mass that would kind of suit the Tories, you might think. Yeah, I mean, David Cameron promised this, didn't he, at the time of his uh, election. He, he promised around the greenest government ever, and it was based on that kind of premise that we were going to have a, a kind of revolution from the Tory party mm. on green energy. It didn't happen. He actually went the other way. So not only have they banned onshore wind, they've placed a carbon tax on green energy, which is just incredible. It costs us two or three million quid a year now. Uh, obviously, green energy doesn't make carbon, but if you're an intensive user of energy, you're exempt from the same carbon tax, which is just bonkers. There's going to be 20% VAT on solar panels at your home. That's being imposed by the Tories as well. Um, you know, wherever you look, there's there's a raft of anti-green measures. So the Tories are pulling in the opposite direction currently. We can but hope that Johnson, with his new majority, thinks that is something that he can get behind. So Prince Charles mentioned green taxes. I mean, you just you, you touched on something there with this. What do you take as an environmentalist, as, as a campaigner? What, what, what do you take green taxes to mean, Dale? It's important to bear in mind that we've got taxes everywhere and subsidies everywhere. Our whole economic system is a kind of series of levers that get pushed and get pulled. And at the moment, for example, the latest figures I saw were that uh, in the UK, we spend over £10 billion a year subsidising or supporting fossil fuels. And we spend half that much subsidising or supporting renewable energy. Um, so for me, green taxes is potentially a misleading term, but, um, but essentially we need to tax pollution not support it. So we need to remove those subsidies from fossil fuel firms. We need to increase the support for renewable energy, for electrification of transport, for changing farming and and that kind of stuff. It's about giving signals to companies and to people that are financial signals that make it more expensive to do the bad things and make it cheaper to do the good things. So like 20% VAT on solar panels at home is silly because at the moment, if you buy coal to power your home, you pay 5% VAT. How does that make any sense? So green, green taxes, uh, I would say actually the, the better way to describe it is that we need to rebalance the tax system to uh, stimulate good behaviour and mm. penalise bad behaviour when it comes to the environment. So green taxes aren't solely something individuals would be asked to pay. I mean, the, corporations, uh, m- more than anything else, would perhaps be the the recipient of, of of where there needs to be some kind of, you know, if you want to call it a penalty, let's call it a penalty, but a tax nonetheless on, on, on corporations causing the damage, or would it be individuals who are buying into it? I think it would be both. I mean, governments just about tax everything, don't they? Everything that, everything that moves and, and a lot of things that don't move uh, get taxed. It's a question of applying those taxes to create the outcome that we need. And we need to move away from polluting uh, consumptive behaviour where we have a you know, a lot of single-use plastic, for example, and a lot of waste created. We need to move away from that. And one way to do that is to make that cost more. Don't let it be cheap to, mm. to do that kind of stuff. And those costs will fall on businesses and on individuals. But at the same time, if we reduce the cost of doing the good things, then uh, that gives an alternative path for us all. Let's talk about Veganuary. Pretty much over. Well, not for you, of course, because you've been doing it for yonks. Uh, but, uh, there, was a, there was a date this month that said this is the day that um, x amount of people fall by the wayside they they gave it a go 
uh, and they couldn't get any further, which is kind I of seen that. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess some people will do it for health reasons and some will do it for ethical reasons. I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, I, I suppose each individual has their, their their reasons behind it. I mean, what, what do you, do, as a vegan, does it bother you that being a vegan has been made into a fashion almost for no, one month only? No, uh, well, no, because I think uh, Veganuary is like a gateway for people. It's a chance to give it a go and see how you feel. And I think there's nothing... Uh, nothing more positive than giving people the chance to have a go. It's important that being vegan doesn't look like a, a cult or a sect yeah. or something prohibitive or off-putting for everybody to give a go because we need everybody to give it a go. And I would say there are three reasons to be vegan. There's not a multitude. There are only three. One is respect for animals. Uh, the other is the climate impact of animal farming. And the third is the climate, uh, sorry, the human health impact of eating animals. And there's you know very clear science behind the two, the climate impact and the human health impact. And there's a, there's a huge moral problem with the way that we farm animals. And people choose one or all of those three. And, and you know, I don't care. Uh, I think it's fantastic that the world is moving this way. You sell vegan pies, of course, uh, at Forest Green Rovers. You, you can't buy meat pies at Forest Green Rovers. But I noticed this week that Chelsea are now selling vegan pies. Yeah, they opened a vegan-only food stall or stand at Stamford Bridge. Bridge. Yeah, which is just amazing. I wonder where they got um, that idea from. Yeah, well, you know, we've been in touch with them and we're going to meet them soon and... Uh, you know, to, to share ideas and stuff like that, which is fantastic. But what really tickled me is that there's one picture that made all the news outlets for this story, and it's a guy being served at this new vegan stand. And he's a Forest Green fan. He's wearing his Forest Green scarf, <laughs> <laughs> which is really funny. Brilliant. Unveiling of the Chelsea vegan stand, and there's a Forest Green rover, so you can't keep them away, you see. Um, First in the queue. It's interesting. We've got a question on that point. Jamie on Twitter says, I'm a vegan living in Manchester. Can I buy your burgers or pies? anywhere else i work at weekends so i can't get to the club not yet i would say um oh, you said that like there's it. news to come though but yeah there is i mean we've, we've firmly got it in our minds but we're getting such a great response from the wholesale catering trade uh, we started out in primary schools we're now in universities and, and across the whole spectrum of um, education we're expecting to be in a few football clubs soon uh, premier league clubs as well as others and um We've started to talk about how do we get this into supermarkets? You know, how do we turn it into a retail product? We probably will trial it at the club um, so that at the end of the game, fans can buy frozen stuff to go home with. But it's definitely on our agenda, I hope, for some time this year. I I know, I I can tell you, I don't want to lecture you on business or anything and go all Dragon's Den on you, Dale, but I know what you have to do. (laughs) You've got to have a picture of your face and the word uncle in front of it. Uh, (laughs) Because... It worked for the rice people, didn't it? I mean, they did rather well out of it. And Paul Newman's salad dressing, whatever the heck it is, that's his face. Yeah, that's true. But he's probably more famous than me. I'm not sure about Uncle Ben. I don't know how it worked for him, but he did. Uncle work Dale's right. pies, I'm sold. There's got to be something yes. in there. <laughs> I know it's just one of the big awards ceremonies uh, recently, the Golden Globes, wasn't it, where the canapes and everything were, were only vegan or something. Yeah, it was brilliant and about time. You know, I've been to a couple of UN events and, uh, you know, after all of the good talk about what we need to do to fight the climate change, you go into the canteen at lunchtime and it's just a sea of animal products. Yeah. <laughs> and you go, well, what's happening here, you know? If Colonel Sanders were alive today, do you think he would still give it a go with the chicken parlours? I have no idea. But I think if he were alive today, my inclination would be to stick him into an intensive chicken shed and see how he liked the experience. <laughs> 
You see, that would be a Netflix show we'd all watch, wouldn't it? <laughs> Sanders in the shed. I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah, watch we'd that? get Ronald McDonald and stick him in a car rearing shed. All of your favourite characters would be yeah. there. Maybe Uncle Ben would make an appearance. This in from Tim on Facebook, who says, uh, saw you on the TV talking politics recently. Uh, do you fancy having a go in 2024? I know you've been asked this before. Um, you've been involved with political parties, and you know we, we've talked a lot on previous podcasts about where you think politics should go. What, what about doing it yourself, Dale? Yeah, I think I have said before that recently I've started to wonder whether uh, getting involved in politics might be a pathway to kind of having more impact, whether I'd done enough using business as a method to bring change and whether now is a good time to try and use politics to bring more change and you know that's kind of live discussion in my mind 2024 is a long way off and i really don't know what i'm going to be doing by then but i wouldn't uh, i wouldn't rule it out or in here's one from robin on facebook have you seen the bbc are doing a year of climate change content is it too little too late or a good thing yeah it can't be too little too late and in my opinion um i think you know we as a world aren't doing enough to fight climate change, but we can't give up. And, uh, you know, year-long climate change event from the BBC can only help. You know, the Blue Planet series had a big impact on yeah. people's consciousness. All of that stuff people see about plastic has a big impact. And, you know, I think the rise of veganism is down to the uh, availability of information that we have now about the conditions in factory farms and the, and the climate impact of animal farming. And I think that's behind this rise in the consciousness of people, which is changing our behaviour. And this one from Simon. uh, Instead of podcasting, why not fix the electric highway? (laughs) Well, when I get off... Can you explain uh, the context behind the question then, Simon? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we we run a national network of charging points uh, in Britain. I think it was one of the first in the world. We got started in 2011. Uh, We cover most of the motorway service stations with the biggest... Uh, charging network in Britain by volume. There are like there are probably 10 networks now. I would say there are three large ones that might consider themselves to be national. And we probably supply twice as much energy as the next biggest one, which has far more pumps. We've got about 300 pumps. Our nearest rivals probably got about 5,000 or something like that. And our tech is quite old because we started in 2011. And we've had some problems with it. We just replaced six that, that are almost completely dead. Just put those in uh, just before Christmas. That's what we're doing at the moment. We're trying to replace the, the worst of our old fleet as we get ready to put in the 150 kilowatt chargers, sure. uh, what's known as HPC, high-powered charging. And the cars that can use that level of power, they're coming this year from all the major uh, manufacturers. So, you know, the EV world's going through a big transition. Charging standards are changing. There are three yeah. at the moment in the world. I think it'll reduce down to one to the European standard, uh, CCS, and I think it will hover around 150 kilowatts. I think a few exotic cars will be able to take 300 kilowatts, like a Porsche and stuff like that, but I don't think that will become the de facto standard. So I think we're close to the end game in terms of standards of chargings and powers of charging, and um, our next job is to upgrade our network again to, um, you know, to be at that level. So that's what we'll do. So as soon as I get off air, I'll pick up my bag of screwdrivers, Tim, and I'll I'll go out and have yeah. a fiddle. Up every highway in the country. Um, <laughs> let's just finish where we began uh, with our friend, Mr. President. And this time, uh, and this was really something else. I mean, we every time he surpasses himself, Dale, every time we play a... An excerpt. Of, I, I think he probably listens and thinks next time. So they've got material for the next episode. I've got to say something even more stupid than I said last time. And so this is Donald Trump talking about dishwashers. But I'm also approving 
new dishwashers that give you more water so you can actually wash and rinse your dishes without having to do it 10 times. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Anybody have a new dishwasher? I'm sorry for that. It's worthless. I mean, did you know there was a limitation on water of dishwashers, Dale, in, in the U.S.? And Donald I, Trump's, I Uncle know. Donald's going to fix it. So. I, I didn't know, and I'm sure most Americans didn't know and notice either. I mean, dishwashers are pretty efficient with water anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's their big advantage. But, you know, he's he's the gift that keeps on giving. Well, he's he? made America Donald's. great again by putting more water in the dishwashers, which is <laughs> very few presidents. Abraham Lincoln never did that kind of stuff. So got to give Donald some credit for this. <laughs> and on that point, uh, that is it for this episode. Uh, Dale, we'll see you on the next one. Thanks, Ian. And don't forget, of course, you can subscribe for free from your podcast provider so that you get every single episode automatically. Do make sure you leave a review as well. Really important bit this. Make sure you follow Dale on social media, twitter.com slash dalevince or facebook.com slash dalevince. And we will see you on the next episode. Zero carbon. East off.